Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open them with me to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible, why don't you pause right now and take a moment to uh, get a copy of God's Word and return. And we are in Ephesians chapter 5. Our text today, just two verses, verses 31 through 32. The title of the message, The Mystery of Marriage. Now, I've made no secret over the years that the book of Ephesians is my favorite in the New Testament to preach from. In fact, uh, in the 16 years that I've been your pastor, we have studied verse by verse on Sunday morning through the book of Ephesians twice already. And I expect if the Lord tarries his second coming and we're all still alive, that we'll come back to it at least one more time. The structure is almost perfectly symmetrical. It's six chapters long. The first three chapters are deep, doctrinal, and the last three chapters are very application-minded and friendly. And so uh, we like things that are symmetrical, don't we? Some folks have noted that this month of February is perfectly symmetrical on the calendar. It began on the 1st on a Monday, and it will conclude on the 28th on a Sunday, and it makes a perfect square on your calendar, and that, for some reason, makes human beings happy. Well, that's the way the book of Ephesians is, and maybe that's one of the reasons we're so attracted to it. When I do counseling in my office, my curriculum almost always is the book of Ephesians. And because uh, the reason being is that the book of Ephesians is all about relationships, Christian to Christian relationships, husband and wife relationships, parent and children relationships, even employer and employee relationships. And when you think about it, almost all the problems that we face are in one of those four categories. This is also true in churches that have problems and sometimes even split apart. The reasons for church splits i found are very rarely theological, although that sometimes happens. They are almost always relationship problems, members to members, pastors to members, deacons to pastors, etc. And so um, this book of Ephesians is, is very important for us to understand how we can have relationships that God can honor. So this morning, we're looking at the most sacred of all human relationships, and that is marriage. Now, we heard from Ephesians 5 many times already through the years, but let's not let it grow old to us. Remember these words as we come back once again to this wonderful book of Ephesians. I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. Paul writes, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. May the Lord have his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now these two short verses, I believe, hold the keys to a biblical understanding of marriage and of its intent. In these two verses, we see the definition of marriage, a parable about marriage, the duties of marriage, and the goal of marriage. And so let's dive right in. First thing we see is the definition of marriage in verse 31. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One man and one woman in an exclusive, 
lifelong monogamous covenant relationship. That is the biblical definition of marriage. Now, there was a time not that long ago when that definition was pretty much universally accepted, especially in our country. And as you know, that is no longer the case. Because that's no longer the case, our church, First Baptist Keller, felt obliged to clarify our understanding of marriage with an amendment to our church covenant a year or so ago. And under the article called family in our church covenant, this is what it says. The church family consists of regenerate members, both married and single. We affirm that God's plan for the family is that marriage is exclusively a relationship between one man and one woman that God designed to last a lifetime. We commit to the honoring and keeping of marital vows. And so the reason I'm preaching this message today is the commitment that we have made to helping you fulfill not only your marital vows, but your marital duties. So why do we care so much about marriage? That's a simple answer. We care so much about marriage here because marriage is God's idea and it's not a social construct. That is the argument we almost always hear today against marriage and at least a biblical understanding of marriage. See, a social construct is an idea that has been created and accepted by the people in a society. And so the thinking goes, if the idea of marriage was created by our ancestors in their society, then we have the right to amend and adjust the definition of marriage as our society sees fit. The Apostle Paul refutes that notion that marriage is a social construct here in these verses by quoting from the book of beginnings. You probably picked up that Paul was referring to Genesis chapter two, verse 24, where God gives Adam a wife. Just listen and be reminded. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. but They were not ashamed. Now this, friends, is where marriage had its origins, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. My point is that what God has defined, man does not have the right to redefine. And God has defined marriage very clearly as a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Now, however, though that definition of marriage is clear, there is a sense in which the purpose of marriage is a mystery, or at least it used to be. What is now clear is that the purpose of marriage is to be a parable to describe Christ's love for his church. And that's the second thing that we see. After the definition of marriage, we see the parable of marriage. Verse 32, Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is a big one, Paul says. And I can tell you in my first and second year of marriage, I said amen to the Apostle Paul. 
because uh, I was 31 when I got married and I uh, have one brother and no sisters and I had not been around girls very much at all in my life. And I had a very difficult learning curve to understand how to treat and communicate with my wife. And she just said, amen. Paul says, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. This word mystery here in your English translation, of course, is from a Greek word, mysterion. And it's not exactly what we think of a mystery, not an Agatha Christie novel, not a whodunit. The Greek word mysterion means something that was obscured in the past that is now made clear. And so Paul is saying that marriage as a concept was mysterious or obscured in the past, but now in the church age, it's been made clear. Now, there is one sense that marriage is part of God's common grace. Common in the sense that it is a blessing for all humanity and not just for Christians. You can think of some blessings like that. The Bible says it rains or snows, in our case, on the just and the unjust. God is gracious to give life's giving precipitation to all humanity. And so marriage, in one sense, is a gift to all humanity. I was speaking to one of our members who is very active in missions, and he's probably traveled internationally as much as anyone I've ever met. And I asked him in my office as I was preparing this message, have you ever gone to any country or come in contact with any culture in the world that did not have a concept of marriage. And he thought for a minute, he says, no, I can't say that I have. Everywhere I go in the world, they have the concept of marriage. Well, that's because it's God's idea and it's part of his common grace. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 37, Peter writes that marriage is the grace of life. Grace means gift. It's a gift to all humanity, in other words. It's a good thing that God has given to bless human beings. Well, how is it a blessing? In what way is marriage a common blessing to all humanity? Well, number one, it provides companionship. The Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. God created man with a need and an urge to be around other people. And so marriage gives us lifelong companionship. It also provides us a partner for life. Scripture says two are better than one, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It also provides for the provision and protection of children. God loves children, doesn't he? And so he wants children to come up in a stable and a firm home life. And so he gives us marriage for that purpose. And he also provides legitimate expression for God-given sexuality. Sexuality is a good blessing from the Lord, but of course Satan tries to pervert every good thing that God gives us. But in the context of marriage, our sexuality can be expressed for the glory of God. And when I do premarital counseling, I always start with a couple by saying, I want you to know your pastor is a huge fan of marriage because I require five hours of premarital counseling before I'll perform a ceremony. And I tell them by the third session, you're gonna think I don't want you to get married. Because most of what we do is to point out all the pitfalls and possible obstacles that we have seen historically that can disrupt and shipwreck marriages. But I'm for marriage, thankful for my own marriage, and view it as one of the great blessings in my life. But here's what we need to be clear about to our children and our friends who are considering entering to this covenant marriage is that marriage is hard. It's not easy. That's true of most things in life that are valuable and worthwhile. And that's certainly true of marriage. I read a quote this week 
one of those quotes that when you read it, you think, I wish I had said that first. And this pastor said, there is a reason why the symbol of Christianity is a cross and not a feather bed. And of course, the reason is marriage and Christianity and Christian marriage, when we put those two things together, is difficult. Marriage is difficult when the two parties enter into it in what we would say ideal circumstances. Both healthy, both financially stable, both pure sexually before the Lord. Even in those circumstances, marriage is difficult. And when you add other factors to marriage, it becomes even more difficult. And so we need to be honest when we talk about marriage. But here's what I want you to hear if you hear nothing else today. A Christ-centered marriage is one of the greatest joys any human can have. It can be a little bit of heaven here on earth. But as we say that on one hand, we need to also honestly say on the other hand that a dysfunctional marriage that does not honor God is a little bit of hell on earth. Now, I want all of us who are members of First Baptist Church of Keller to have the kinds of marriages that God intends for us to have. And it's not just because I want you to be happy. And I do care about your happiness. Uh, but as one of our former staff members used to always remind us as parents that God cares more about our children's holiness than he does our happiness. And so the Bible cares much more about our holiness than our happiness, but we can have both. If we are walking in the Lord's will, fulfilling our God-given roles in marriage, doesn't mean we're not gonna have any problems, doesn't mean we're not gonna have difficulties in marriage, but it is the kind of marriage that God honors and blesses. Now, that is the mystery that was hidden in the past that is now revealed in the present. Here it is. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. Really, it's a parable. You know, a parable is an earthly story or metaphor which carries a heavenly or an eternal meaning. You can remember some of the great parables that Jesus taught. He taught the parable of the soils that the sower, the farmer went out to sow. And we believe that seed was the gospel message. And some of it fell upon hard, compacted soil. And some of it fell upon weedy soil. And uh, some of it fell on good soil. And so really the only evidence that a person is truly born again is that it comes up out of the ground after it's planted, that is the gospel message, and it produces fruit. And so that's a wonderful metaphor of the gospel. Uh, Jesus told the parable of the virgins, 10 virgins who were going to a wedding. Five of them bought oil for their lamp and five didn't. Five were prepared for the bridegroom coming and five weren't. Five were invited in, five were left outside the door. And that's a picture of the Lord's second coming, that we must be prepared, watchful and waiting for him to come. So there's all sorts of parables. And Paul is indicating that marriage Yes, it's God's gift to humanity, but its primary intent was to show people the gospel, to show them Christ's love for the church. And you say, well, wait a second. Marriage predates Jesus' birth. Yes, it does, but it does not predate the gospel. Because just as we saw in Genesis chapter two where marriage began, we also see in Genesis chapter three that in the heart of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the gospel already existed. That plan to redeem a person, a people unto himself, a church unto himself, was already in existence. The Bible says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. And that is this mystery that's now revealed, is that marriage always was intended to point 
people to Christ. Now, I think like many people, for many years, I had that concept just backwards in my mind. I think I thought that the Bible referred to the church as the bride of Christ and Christ as the bridegroom of the church as an allowance to our humanity. That is, he allows us a comparison that we mortals can understand from our own society, namely marriage, to help us understand our eternal relationship with him. God sometimes does that in the scripture, doesn't he? He makes allowances for our frailty and our humanity so that we can have somewhat of an understanding of what he's like. We call that anthropomorph anthropomorphism. We talk about the arm of the Lord is not weak and the eyes of the Lord wander to and fro. We know God the Father doesn't have a human body like us, but he allows us to use those terms anthropomorphically so that we can understand a little bit of what he's like. That's not what he's doing here, Paul is saying. He is saying clearly that Christ loved his own before marriage ever existed, and the primary purpose of marriage is to make clear that truth. So that leads us now to this understanding of the mystery that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. This is the implication, and I hope you're following my train of thought here. If Marriage is to be a picture, a parable to a lost and dying world of Christ's love for the church. That means that if our marriages and when our marriages don't reflect God's definition or intent for marriage, we obscure the gospel to the lost and dying world. And friends, I can't think of anything more serious than that, to be guilty of making it more difficult for people to come to Jesus. That was the Lord's primary problem with the Pharisees. When I read in the Gospels how Jesus calls the Pharisees time and time again on the carpet and rebukes them with some harsh language that's sometimes very difficult to read, I'm reminded that the reason he was so harsh with them is they were guilty of the sin of making it more difficult to get to him. Remember that uh, he accused them of that from time to time, preventing people from getting to Jesus. Paul said a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking of the Jews in the synagogues that were opposing him and the gospel message. He says this, they displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them. Paul says that for a person who makes it more difficult for another person to see the truth of the gospel, they are heaping God's wrath up. So you can see that it behooves us as believers and members of this church to understand the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage, but thirdly, our duties in that marriage. He says, wives, we have to go back up now to verse 22, Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands. Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And so in the definition of marriage that God gives us, there's a man, there's a woman. There's a husband and there's a wife. And each of them have unique and different roles 
in the marriage. When he says that the husband is the head of the wife, that's from a Greek word, um, kephala, meaning head. If you've studied biology, you're familiar with that term. And so as the head of the wife and of the family, a husband's role is to obviously love the wife, but also to lead as the head leads the body and to protect his wife and family. So if you could summarize the role of a husband in a marriage, he is to love, lead, and protect. And then on the other hand, the wife's role then is to submit and be faithful to his servant leadership. Now, I know that is absolutely cross grains of everything you young people have heard in your life about the relationship of men and women and husbands and wives. And maybe you're hearing me say that God thinks that women are inferior to men. I am not saying that. Nowhere in the scripture will you find that. It simply says that in the marriage, God has given different roles to men and women. And when either or in many cases, both in the marriage, the husband and the wife, convolute their roles or misunderstand their roles, the parable of marriage is misunderstood. And even worse, the gospel message is obscured. And so what do I mean when I say many marriages in our world today, the roles are convoluted? Well, I think in, in two primary ways, and sometimes both ways. The first way we often see it is through a selfish, a brutish, and a childish husband. A lot of the marriage counseling uh, that I do, uh, in, with men particularly, um, they always want to point to the wife's faults. If she would just do this and that, then I would be a better husband. And, and, and doing little more research, I find out that in many cases, not always, he has been selfish and even mean-spirited to his wife over a long period of time. And he can't understand why she's not willing to submit to his authority. On the other hand, sometimes we find that uh, there's a wife who is a root of bitterness and she will refuses stubbornly to submit to even a servant-minded husband's leadership and she can become contentious. The Old Testament says that it's better to live in the corner of a rooftop than with a contentious wife. Now, when a marriage is in real difficulty is when both husband and wife are failing to recognize and convoluting their roles in the marriage. So let's begin with the husband, shall we? Verse 25, here's your role. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are parts of his body. So you're to love your wife, husband, as Christ loves the church. How much did Jesus love the church? Enough to die. You say, well, I got that covered. A robber broke into our house. I would jump in between his gun and my wife in a blink of an eye. And maybe you would. That's not what he's talking about here. It, it is statistically unlikely that you're ever going to have to take a bullet for your wife, though it's possible, or push her out of the way of a runaway bus and take the brunt yourself. That's possible. What he's saying here 
is that you have to consciously and conscientiously be willing to put your wife's need ahead of your own all the time. That's what Christ does. He condescended, the scripture says. He emptied himself of the glories of heaven where he was worshiped day and night by the angels to come to earth and become like us, take on a human body, not in a royal home or a palace, but in a humble home of a carpenter. And he was tempted in every way we are. And he did that because he's humble. And husbands, the most important thing you can be in your marriage towards your wife is humble. And so you show me a man that's always making demands upon his wife to submit, submit, submit. I'll show you a man who doesn't understand Ephesians chapter 5. Dr. Adrian Rogers used to tell the story. He preached from this text. And when he was reading the verse about wives, be subject to your husbands. He noticed this man out in the congregation elbowing his wife really hard, telling her to listen real closely to that. And he said it made the wife so mad that the husband didn't see the wife for a full week. And after seven days, he could see her a little bit out of one eye. And so these verses are often misunderstood and used, unfortunately, and sinfully to try to correct the other person rather than seeing our own roles here. And so the husband's role is to love the wife as Christ loves the church, to put her needs consistently ahead of his own, to treat her with the kind of love and respect that will help her to make progress in sanctification, seeing her as part of the same church body that he's a part of. So the wife then is to love her husband as well and respect her husband. Look at verse 33. It says, nevertheless, each individual among you, that is husband and wife, is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects, reverences, submits to her husband. Now, those are the roles of marriage. Now, fourthly, finally, let's see the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage. We often say that there is an already and a not yet element to the kingdom of God. That is true as it relates to marriage as a parable or a picture of the gospel. Remember, the thing that was hidden in the past that is now revealed is that marriage has always intended to point to Christ's love for the church. And marriage in the ancient world, though it's similar to what we understand today, was a little bit different. In fact, here's the main difference. Most marriages in the ancient world and still many parts of the world today were arranged marriages. We live in this little bubble of history here in the Western world where a husband or a man tries to woo a woman and convince her to marry him or, or vice versa. For many centuries, in fact, almost all of human history, marriages were arranged between families. Well, the scripture says that uh, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is, he put his affection upon us and set his mind to save us. And so in that sense, he arranged the marriage. Also in the ancient world, marriage had two phases. There was a betrothal period in which um, the husband was to prepare to take care of his wife for a lifetime and the wife was to prove her fidelity and, and loyalty. Remember, that was the period that Mary and Joseph were in when it was discovered that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They had not yet come together, consummated their marriage as, as husband and wife. They were in that preparation period. Legally, 
In the eyes of the community, in the eyes of the law of God, they were legally married, but it had not reached its consummation. Now, thirdly and finally, when that day came, there was a great celebration. All the friends and family members uh, came. I think that's what Jesus is pointing to in John chapter 14. When he says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. What he's saying is I'm going to prepare a place for you as my bride. I'm going to add rooms. God's been adding rooms on his heavenly home for all of those who are considered the bride of Christ. And the scripture says one day God the Father is going to say to the Son, now's the time, go get your bride. And when Christ comes for his church, there's going to be a wonderful celebration, the likes of which the world has never seen. You want to read about it? Let's read about it. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Go all the way back to the end of your Bible, to Revelation 19. And as the eternal plan of redemption has unfolded through the first 18 chapters of the book of Revelation, it comes to this consummation moment in verse Seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. That is all of human history has been leading to this moment and let's celebrate because it's finally here. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That is, during that betrothal period between the time that Christ ascended into heaven and the time he comes again is that betrothal period, as we think of marriage as a parable, in which the church proves herself faithful and pure, clothed herself in white linens through the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9, then he said to me, this is an angel that's speaking to John, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And what the book of Revelation says about that marriage supper is that uh, only those who have robes given to them by the Lord, proper garments, in other words. That is, those who have received salvation as a gift of God, salvation by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be allowed admittance into this marriage supper. Here's what else it says, that those in attendance, there's going to be representatives from every tribe and nation and tongue and people group. What a blessed, glorious day. That's going to be. And so that's why John says spontaneously, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. And so friends, we have a serious task before us, those of us who are married. We have to first of all accept and understand God's definition of marriage. That it's between one man and one woman in covenant monogamous relationship that is meant to last a lifetime. And so if you are dabbling in other relationships that are seeking to vie for the affection that is owed only 
to the unique relationship of marriage, it's more than dangerous. It's sinful. Because what you're about to do is not only hurt your marriage and your family and your reputation in the church and community, you're about to be guilty of obscuring to a lost and dying world the truth of the gospel. Because that's what our marriages are intended to be. And if you accept a definition of marriage that's less than biblical, you are in danger of obscuring the gospel to a lost and a dying world. And so you understand why we take marriage so seriously here at First Baptist Church of Keller. Because it's a gift of God and all gifts of God are to be treasured and valued and understood as a means through which we can bring glory to him. That is my prayer for my own marriage, for, for every marriage in First Baptist Church of Keller, that we would in each and every marriage bring glory to God. So I want to close today by praying a blessing on all the marriages of our church. Would you join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we have seen very clearly today that marriage is your idea. It's not a social construct. It's not something that men made up to subjugate women, not something that women made up to ensure their financial future. It's your plan. And there are many benefits to it. It protects us. It uh, provides for us companionship for a lifetime, a partner to do life with. But most importantly, today we've seen it's a parable. It's a story, a metaphor that helps to explain Christ's love for the church. In short, the gospel. So Father, help us take that very seriously. Help us never to even dabble in anything that would diminish the clarity of Christ's love for his church, even for a moment. Father, I pray for every marriage in our church, especially my own, that we would not only understand the definition, but would be zealous to fulfill our God-given roles that we men and husbands would indeed love our wives as Christ loved the church. Yes, be willing to lay down our life, but every day put their needs ahead of our own selflessly. I pray for the women of our church that they would not buy into the noise of the world that says that if they submit to their husbands, they're going to be unfulfilled. So, Father, I pray they would trust you and not the world. Father, I indeed pray that uh, in our marriages, our family members who are lost and our friends who don't know the Lord, and even strangers would be attracted to Jesus because of the love we have for one another. Father, we look forward to that day that's spoken of in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the land. Until then, Lord, Help us like a betrothed bride to be watchful and prepared and excited about the coming of our bridegroom. And we pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org dot o-r-g